come back uh, every few months and see how things are taking shape here. Uh, uh, you're so lucky to have this place. It's hard to find a practice place and to uh, be building community in place. So uh, I just uh, uh, I can recognize this. it's just a rare uh, treasure these days. Uh, so it's nice to touch base with you. And uh, I just uh, got to meet with some of the the kids and the parents uh, outside. Uh, Gil invited me to come down and spend some time with them. Uh, and uh, I told a told him a I shared a story that uh, a friend of mine uh, named Rafe Martin had reworked from Jataka Tale, and that was uh, it was neat. And then listening to them, uh, where they took that story, uh, you know, where they uh, wanted to go with it, or uh, who they thought was uh, the Buddha. You know, and these Jataka tales are uh, tales of uh, they actually predate Buddhism, but they're uh, tales of sort of previous lives of the Buddha. Uh, and inter- it was interesting because there's one, it's this story is called The Foolish Rabbit's Big Mistake. And, uh, <coughs> and uh, you're supposed to think that the lion uh, is the Buddha uh, because he represents kind of a groundedness and wisdom. Uh, but... Uh, one of the kids was sharp enough to see that the foolish rabbit was the Buddha, uh, you know, because he was in the process of making mistakes and learning. Uh, and actually, uh, I think the the message for us is that we're all Buddha. And the question is, how do we bring that forth? Um, I think one of the key ways that we bring it forth, and it's a little uh, sometimes hard for us to see, uh, is in the practice of renunciation, of letting go, which is not so obvious to us as lay people as it might be if we were uh, monks or nuns, uh, where the path of renunciation is very is very clear. Uh, And in a certain way, it's a little easier uh, because of its clarity. So I thought I would talk a little about renunciation and actually have some, like to have some discussion. Uh, And I like to put it in the context of um, what we call the pure precepts. Are you familiar with them? Do you study them? Well, um, they go back to the early Buddhist tradition. And I was thinking about them this morning because uh, yesterday at Berkeley Zen Center, we we did what we call the full moon ceremony or the bodhisattva ceremony, uh, which is sort of the Zen version of the old monastic ceremony uh, of taking the Vinaya and the precepts, which uh, monks still do uh, twice a month. They do at the time of the full moon and of the new moon. 
Uh, and at that time, in most of the full monastic traditions, they recite the whole patimoka, the whole package of, uh, of precepts and rules, uh, which are about uh, 250-something for men, uh, and then 280 or 90-something for women. They've got these other vows they have to take. Uh, but that's not the way, uh, that's not what we inherited in the Zen tradition. So we take the, we take the Bodhisattva precepts, which are uh, much like the five precepts that you might take at a retreat, not vowing not to kill, not to steal, uh, not to lie, not to use intoxicants, uh, not to misuse sexuality. And then the Bodhisattva precepts are, they expand on those a little bit. But they all derive from uh, this teaching of the Buddha of the pure precepts or the Ovada Patimoka. This was the Buddha's first teaching of ethical rules. Uh, the 250 then evolved in an interesting way, uh, you know over time, as a monastic community grew, uh, somebody would, people would come up to the Buddha and say, uh, well, you know, Venerable so-and-so is taking all of his food, he's making into it a big ball and stuffing it into his mouth. And the Buddha would say, well, we don't do that. You know, or, uh, you know, uh, Venerable so-and-so has eight brocaded robes. And he'd say, no, two robes. Uh, and it, got, it gets very detailed, you know. Venerable so-and-so is having sexual relations with a tree. You know, I said, no, we don't do that, you know. Uh, so uh, 250, you know, it's actually kind of a small number compared to the kinds of things that, that people could do. Um, and uh, when the Buddha was dying, uh, Ananda... Uh, I believe it was Ananda, came to him and as he was on his deathbed and said, well, what, what should we do after you are gone? And the Buddha said, well, you should maintain the practice. Uh, and Ananda said, well, we have all these rules. Which ones should we keep? And the Buddha said, well, just keep the major ones. You don't have to keep the minor ones. He said, great. <laughs> and then the Buddha died and they had the first council. Uh, and they called in Ananda and said, well, what did he say about the precepts? And um, he said, well, he said, just keep the major ones and uh, don't worry about the minor ones. And he said, oh, great. So which were the minor ones? And he said, oh, I forgot to ask. <laughs> so they decided, okay, we will keep them all. Uh, and that's how we have all of these rules in the monastic tradition that are handed down today. And, and some of them don't, frankly, to me, make a lot of sense. But I respect the people who, the people who really try to keep them, uh, who live by that rule. And it's a, you know, it's a wonderful way to live. Uh, it really uh, gives you a form and a structure to your life. But all of this is embedded 
all these precepts are, they flow from uh, these pure precepts, and those are uh, refrain from doing evil or doing harm. Uh, devotedly do all that is good. And the third one is purify the mind. In the uh, Mahayana tradition, they're the same, except the third one um, is uh, framed as uh, save the many beings, uh, which in essence is the same as purify the mind. Uh, those beings exist within our mind. We exist within their mind. Uh, saving the many beings means uh, practicing in a way that brings harmony to yourself and to all beings. So those are the those are the three pure precepts, and you'll find them uh, in the very early teachings. You'll find them; they're in the the Dhammapada, uh, somewhere. Oh, well. Thought I had it. Oh yeah, it's in the Dhammapada. Uh, verses 183 to 185. Uh, so that's Dhammapada is pretty early teaching. So the practice of renunciation is the practice of avoiding all evil or refraining from all evil. And that has a number of different dimensions for us. Uh, I think the monastic life is very clear. You know, it's a life of uh, not using money, taking what is given to one, uh, living very simply, and living at the generosity of others in a very overt way. Uh, for us, it's a little more complicated. We live in the world. Uh, where you live and where I live uh, is uh, you know, an area of uh, astonishing uh, wealth and advantage. And at the same time, there's also poverty and suffering and lack. Uh, and even that is relative to the kinds of lives that people live in other parts of the world. So one way that uh, that I think of a life of renunciation is uh, avoiding evil or refraining from evil is not living one's life at the expense of others. Uh, and this is a very, this is a you know, kind of high bar for us uh, because, in fact, we can't help it. There's no real way 
that we can do it uh, within the society that we live in. And yet, we have to keep making the effort. You know, just to drive here today is living at the expense of others. Uh, often how we eat or what we eat, how we live in different ways, is living at the expense of others. And so it means bringing up that awareness and um, mindful of that awareness, understanding what comes up, what arises for us in our feelings, in our life from that awareness. And as that arises, uh, we can make choices. Sometimes they're material or personal choices. Sometimes they're political choices uh, or economic choices. Sometimes they're choices about uh, the occupations that we follow. Uh, they're choices about how we raise our children. So all of these are in the realm of uh, the practice of renunciation or relinquishment. And there's a wonderful teaching from Suzuki Roshi, uh, which, which I like. Uh, he says that renunciation is not giving up the things of the world, but it's accepting that they go away. And this gets a little deeper and further into the heart of renunciation. Uh, everything that we have goes away. Our parents, uh, our abilities, uh, everything that is around us is impermanent. Uh, I'm really struck by that this week. Uh, a good friend of ours at Berkeley Zen Center uh, just died all of a sudden, age of 51, last, uh, it was a week ago, last Saturday morning. And, you know, he was in, it seemed like he was in really good health. Uh, he was just really giving back to the world uh, and practicing and his life just went away. Um, I pray that in that going away, he was able to accept it in that moment of going away. Uh, and partly we practice to recognize this going away and also to to prepare for it, to be able to prepare for being aware as things are letting go of us. Uh, and that's a deeper level of renunciation. 
And that gets to this second pure precept. Uh, the second pure precept is uh, uh, it's not prohibitory. It's affirming. It's devotedly due all good. Uh, and that is, I think, the essence of, of the practice that we have as we sit here uh, devotedly doing good is sitting upright, breathing, being aware of each thought and feeling that rises, and then practicing, uh, maybe not renunciation. Renunciation has a, renunciation has a funny smell in, uh, in our culture, I think. Uh, we, uh, it, it sort of, I think, has a religious, uh, kind of religious feeling of denial, uh, almost of, you know, putting on a hair shirt. Uh, but it's more really just relinquishment, letting go. And we've all know lots about letting go. And that's what we're trying to do. That's, and that is what devotedly do all good is. Uh, devotedly let go again and again. Thought after thought. Breath after breath. So with each breath, when we take in our breath and we come to life and we let it go out. And we don't have to make an effort let it go out, uh, we just accept that it goes away and we let that happen. Uh, and the model of our breath is also the model of the way we can practice with our thoughts and feelings. And this is the laboratory for doing that in this setting, in this safe setting, among friends. Uh, we practice letting go of thought after thought. Uh, we let go of any thought of how things should be at this moment. We let go of any thought, oh, I'm practicing, am I practicing right, am I practicing wrong? There is no way. Uh, you can't practice wrong. Um, if you're actually practicing sitting, breathing, practicing mindfulness, uh, that's beyond right and wrong. There is, of course, right and wrong in this world. But not here. Not in the moment of practicing itself. Uh, out of habit, we're used to thinking about right and wrong, and we're used to thinking about good and evil. 
but the practice that we're doing is actually in this setting uh, with each other, is beyond that. And as that understanding takes shape, then we begin to practice the third pure precept, uh, to purify the mind. And because we do this with each other, uh, with sangha or with community, uh, each of our practice, each practice, each person practicing is also saving all of those beings around us. Uh, And so this is as I said, I feel like this is a kind of laboratory, uh, you know, where we can simplify our lives. We practice renunciation here when we come in here and we sit down. We let go of the other things that are going on today. You know, it's good try not to think about lunch, you know, or try not to think about... Uh, the meeting that you just had or the meeting that you're going to have uh, because uh, we learn to trust those things will take care of themselves in time. You know, when we sit down here, that's our job. That's our intention. Just do that. Just follow our intention for this time and let all those other things fall away. So that is practice of renunciation that embodies avoiding or refraining from evil and doing good and purifying the mind or saving all sentient beings. And it's difficult. I just want to uh, acknowledge and honor that uh, because the world that we live in is a difficult and painful place. And we have this place as a, as a refuge and we take refuge in each other. And then we go, we continue and live most of our rest of our lives in the world at large. But the kinds of the kind of practice that we do here uh, in, the, in the safety of community, in the safety of uh, a place like this, uh, enables us to develop habits that replace, to, re- to develop dharma habits that replace the habits that... Uh, have kind of ruled our lives, many of our lives, since, since we were children. Uh, and even though uh, we're not children anymore, it's still kind of astonishing how subject to those forces we are. So we're replacing them each time those, uh, those thoughts come up, the thoughts that we we've been carrying for years and years, 
as they come up in here, we set them aside. Uh, setting them aside is both refraining from and the act of setting aside is devotedly doing. And it takes some devotion. That's the uh, little spoken of faith side of our practice. And we actually have to have some faith. Uh, but it's just faith. It's not necessarily faith in something, in some being or in some concept. Uh, it's just uh, the faith of devotion, the faith of application of oneself to the moment. Another way to, to think about letting go is uh, to have no gaining idea. No idea of getting ahead in your practice, getting ahead in your life. And there's a dialogue from one of the one of the great um, Zen masters, uh, Sekito, uh, a teacher, uh, a student asked him, "What's the essential meaning of Buddha Dharma?" And Sekito replied, "No gaining, and no knowing." Uh, and then the student said. Uh, can you say anything further? You know, it's like, I don't quite get it. Uh, and Sekito answered, Yes, the vast sky does not obstruct the floating white clouds. So this is the vast sky of our life. It's within, we, we live within that vast sky. So no gaining uh, means just being able to take in what is arising moment after moment. And no knowing is letting go of, uh, we know so much, you know, uh, we know so much about so many things. Uh, but letting go of any notion of what we know or of what we think is, you know, right, and you have to stand on that principle right now, uh, for this time, in this situation, letting go of uh, being an expert. Uh, this is, you know, uh, another... Uh, Another teaching from Suzuki Roshi in the uh, in the beginner in beginner's mind, there are limitless options, uh, there are limitless choices, and in, in the expert's mind, there are few. You know, expert mind already has got it narrowed down to the few things 
that are the right things to do in this situation. So not knowing is opening yourself to the complete realm of possibility. Uh, and it's opening yourself to each other. Uh, so that practice in, uh, in the world, it, you know, can start here in the, in the context of your Sangha meetings. Uh, not knowing is, uh, involves really deep listening. Uh, and not speaking out of a sense of what you think is right, but just refraining from that. And you don't have to refrain endlessly, but refrain for a while and see how the conversation takes shape and see what other people contribute. And then that shapes your own thinking. So it's stepping aside from the habit of being right and also the habit of being wrong, you know, and the fear of the fear of being wrong, the fear of being seen through, you know, because in this practice, you're, you can't be wrong. You just devotedly apply yourself over and over again. So that's, um, I think, a little bit about the practice of relinquishment uh, and how we might work with it as, as lay people, as people who are in the world, uh, who don't have this wonderful uh, structure of uh, 250-so rules that show us exactly what to let go of. Uh, we're in this murky uh, realm of having to figure that out ourselves and having to uh, get help from our friends, our brothers and sisters and our teachers. Um, and I think that that's very rich. It's a difficult way to live. But uh, because of whatever good fortune in our lives brought us here, uh, we have that opportunity. And so we have that opportunity in refraining from and devotedly doing to uh, purify our own minds and also to share that, to help save all beings uh, with how we are in the world, starting with, with each of us, how we carry ourselves in this room and in the world outside with our families, uh, with our communities, with our, uh, in our jobs. Uh, and so the practice of renunciation and relinquishment uh, takes place everywhere. There's no place that's not touched by it. So I think maybe I'll stop there and uh, leave time for thoughts, comments, questions. Thank you. I invite your words.
I understand the renunciation, but sometimes emotional neutrality. Then I understand renunciation. I don't have to cope with emotion. I understand renunciation. Then emotion suffers me. Okay, renunciation, renunciation. But emotion tortures me. Well, that's right. That's so. Now you've gotten right to the problem. Uh, you you can't not have an emotion. If the emotion comes up, uh, you have to reckon with it. Uh, you can't repress it or push it away, or pretend that it's not there. Um, I think the challenge is when we have an emotional reaction, uh, what do we do? What do we do with our thoughts? What do we do with our words? What, we, what do we do with our actions? So um, we don't push any emotion away. Uh, we have to sit in the middle of that emotion and recognize that that, uh, it, it's really hard. Recognize that that is the perfect expression of you in that moment, however much you may not like it, or however much you may like it. Uh, so uh, practicing in the midst of that emotion is is a challenge. There's uh, uh, a teacher, uh, Ken McLeod, uh, whom I know, and he reframes, uh, you know, the four noble truths. The first truth is the uh, the truth of suffering. Uh, the cause of suffering is the second. Uh, the fact of the, rele- the possible release from suffering is the third, and the, and the fourth is the path. So the second noble truth usually gets um, spoken of as uh, the cause of suffering is attachment or desire. Uh, and what he's done is he, he says the cause of suffering is emotional reactivity which I find very useful. Uh, it's not the emotion. It's, uh, it's how one reacts to it. If one is pushed around uh, and then uh, speaks or acts or tortures oneself in a, uh, in a way that's, that's not helpful, then you're caught by that emotion. If you can find a way to, ha- to experience that, uh, however painful, and not react out of habit, then that's how we bring practice to bear. Uh, so, in a general sense, that's how I could, that's how I would res- respond. Uh, and then, you know, working with a teacher, working with friends, uh, what you can do is. Uh, 
share that when the emotion is coming up. Back and forth. How am I feeling? What does this, you know, uh, how does this make me want to act or uh, what might I want to say or do? And uh, bring, allow someone else, sometimes we need to allow someone else in. And that's part of that's part of the training process of working with our minds uh, is opening ourselves to other people uh, and as you do that you begin to develop tools so that you can actually you can do it more for yourself so that's just a start A judge? Are you a judge or a lawyer? No, I'm not a judge or a lawyer, but I have a client that I'm fighting with. Well, I'm not a judge or a lawyer either. Uh, <laughs> and I don't play one on television. Um, but uh, I think they have different my understanding and those of you who uh, are in those professions probably have uh, I'd be interested in here hearing how you think my understanding is that that a lawyer has a has a uh, responsibility to represent uh, the person whom they're working for, apart from right or wrong. Uh, and then a judge has a whole other set of responsibilities for for weighing uh, the the aspects of a case. And uh, it is her or his job uh, to uh, to make a judgment. Uh, these are very difficult responsibilities. Is there anybody? I'll bet there's a lawyer here, or even a judge. Yeah. I'm a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you don't become a different person when you become a lawyer. I mean, you, you take your own um, ethics with you, and there are ethics that are required as a lawyer. So right. you can't falsify things, you can't do things that would be improper. I think that part of the practice, and I have, I have some friends who've been working with uh, with attorneys and judges uh, who are uh, who've been in the Zen world and in the Vipassana world, uh, uh, and 
I think part of the challenge for people in the legal profession, as is no different from any of the rest of us, is uh, when meeting with you, say, not to have for that attorney and that or that judge, not to have, not to be following their agenda. In other words, not to be doing something self-centered for themselves, but to be focusing on uh, what's the best way to manifest with the person that they're working with. What's the what's the best way, the best, the most unself-centered way to be to be looking at the case. So uh, to step aside there from. Uh, <coughs> You can't step aside from right or wrong because that's in the nature of that system, but you can step aside from being self-serving. And I think that's maybe, uh, that's a challenge. It's hard because that whole system pushes you because it's involved in right and wrong. You know, it moves you in that direction. Uh, and yet, if you're practicing, uh, you know, the challenge is to keep letting letting go of the self-centered uh, Notion, uh, you know, or of the powers one has, you know, pride in one's uh, argumentative abilities, etc., and just really focus on uh, the person, the case, etc. Me time for one more. Acknowledge your ambition, if you have ambition. Uh, and then uh, just keep bringing it up to awareness, rather than being pushed around by it. Uh, you may still decide to follow it, and, but you can evaluate, is this wholesome? Is this, help, is this really helpful to me? Uh, and in some ways, you may say, yes, this is, this is a good thing to do and I want to go ahead with this. Uh, or you may say, well, this is really causing me a lot of suffering. Uh, but uh, don't pretend it's not there. You know, just really see it. There's one more. Uh, I wonder what to do with ideas that keep popping up in meditation. Creative ideas. Good ideas. Uh-huh. Well, my experience is, uh, uh, well, it reminds me, a writing teacher that I had uh, uh, said, well, if you have talent, it, you know, it, even, it, it won't go away. You know, you have to have faith in it. And my experience, uh, I'll tell you my experience and then I'll make a confession. My experience <laughs> is, uh, that if it's a really good idea, it, it'll be around at the end of that period of meditation. Uh, and, but just during the meditation, don't get hooked by it. Let it go. And if it really has some 
value or some weight, it's going to still be there. You know, our, eyes, our minds are just generating idea after idea. It's an incredible stream. Uh, so the confession part is uh, that sometimes I keep a little pad <laughs> by, my, by my cushion. And uh, I don't do this much, but sometimes uh, if I find that an idea is hooking me, then it's like, okay, just write it out in two words, put it down, then it's gone. You know? And, you know, I look back, and it's interesting, as I was saying, I look back from time to time at this pad, uh, and it's just a ploy. Uh, because if it's really, as I said, if it really has some, uh, some quality, then it stays, it'll stay around in my mind. But it's like all, you know, Spad has got like all these great ideas. I'm not going to do any of them. They're not that great, you know. Uh, but it enables me, it's just a tool for enabling me to, okay, I can set it aside. Uh, I don't know what Gil would say about that. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't even, actually, I don't even know what, what Sojin would say about that. I don't tell anybody. I just do it and do it very quietly and set it aside. Because my mind tends to be somewhat obsessive. I would get hooked by it. But I really find that, that works for me. And the more... Uh, and also, that it's, it's just skillful means. And in fact, I actually don't do that very much anymore. Uh, because uh, I've, you know, now I can just sort of write it down. I can visualize writing it down and setting it aside. But set it aside. And if it's really worth something, it'll stay. Well, thank you. And we'll have... Uh, brunch pretty soon, right? So I can, I'll stay around. Yeah. <laughs>